0: Text of this Christmas sermon is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse verses 18 through 21. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now that Christmas draws near, there are two things, I think, that are extremely important. We need to keep emphasizing in our hearts that this is a Christian celebration. It was the pre-Christmas rush in Chicago a few years ago, when this story appeared on the front page of the newspaper, it said that they found the body of a grown man about 33 years of age in the bargain basement of a large department store. Evidently, he'd been trampled and crushed by the press of, a thousand of uh, thousands of Christmas shoppers. When we examined the body, said one patrolman, we found nail prints in his hands. Coincidence? Well, there is one thing, I think, that we cannot dodge, and it's this, that Jesus often gets pressed and trampled and left behind in the press of the extracurricular activities we add to His birthday. And the second is that we need to remember that it's not just enough to remember His birth. The real, the total message of Christmas is not just a cradle in Bethlehem, but the cross of Golgotha and the crown of the risen Lord and the consecration of every Christian. That's the total message of Christmas. Not that he just, not just that He came, but that He came for a purpose. And that purpose was to save you and me and the whole world. And that's the message we need to proclaim. Somebody asked me last Sunday if anybody said anything to me about my Christmas sermons. I knew it was coming, you know. I said, no, not really. He said, well, I've noticed that you've uh, talked as much about his death as you have talked about his birth. I wonder if anybody said anything to you about that. I should hope not. Because the total message of Christmas involves the whole scope of it, both his birth, his life, and his death. And it's summarized in the nineteenth verse of the fifth chapter of Second Corinthians, and in the verses that surround it. For there, in that summary, Christmas is divided into three parts: the word made flesh—that's the incarnation; the way made plain—that is salvation—and the world—and the world must know—that is participation. The Word made flesh, the incarnation. He said God was in Christ. John says it beautifully in his prologue In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, not in God, as some cults insist. But the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is history, his birth. It is recorded, it is proven and certified, much like our births. The genealogies of Scripture correspond to our family records in the family Bible. And the birth certificate of Jesus is found in four Gospels, one of them written by a physician. Outside his family, his birth is confirmed by shepherds and wise men. He was born, it is history, his birth. But not only is it history, it is holy history. For God was in Christ. And the incarnation means that God became flesh. He was communicated in human life. He was exemplified in human action. He was crystallized in human form. God became man. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the apex of the total history of mankind. And all of the other events of the Gospels find their their significance in that one great event. The Sermon on the Mount, the marvelous teachings of Jesus, the agonies of Gethsemane and Golgotha, and the resurrected glory gain their meaning from the Incarnation. For the one who was involved was God Himself. This Christ had a previous existence unknown to man, so that those who came to Bethlehem to see Him were coming to see him who had always been he did not come into being at bethlehem he was manifested there he who had always been he said before abraham was i am before abraham went out looking for a city i am before moses gave the law i am before david established the kingdom i am before Israel's captivity, before one prophet preached, I am coexistent, coeternal with the Father. All the mystery of the incarnation. Only grace can explain it. Only God can accomplish it. That he who through whom time was made was made in time, and he who made man was made man. And he who gave his mother an existence was brought into existence by that mother. He who through eternity was older than the world was younger than some of his servants in the world. He was carried by hands that he formed. He nursed at breast that he filled. And in the manger in speechless infancy he cried this word before, without which all human eloquence is speechless. Oh, the mystery of the incarnation. God became flesh. Wayne Ward used to take trips to the Holy Land, this professor of theology at Southern Seminary. And he said, we'll never forget one Christmas. We were on a trip to the Holy Land and a side trip to Cairo. And he said, we were standing in the citadel of Saladin, the great Muslim mosque in Cairo, and we were watching on the sides as these Muslims prayed to a God that could neither hear nor respond. And Abu, our Muslim guide, was smiling as he watched them and said, we all reach out to the same God. You call Him God and you follow His prophet, Jesus. We call Him Allah and we follow His prophet, Mohammed. But it all comes to the same thing. And Wayne Ward said, I could stand it no longer. And I said, no, Abu, you're wrong. We do not follow Jesus as a prophet. We believe that Jesus was God who came down in flesh. We believe that Allah has come in flesh. The answer rocked Abu on his heels. He'd never heard anything so incredible, so impossible, so incredulous as that. It was almost blasphemy to him to think that God would come in flesh. The next morning, he said, as they prepared to leave Cairo, Abu came up to him and said, I've been checking you out, sir. You're right. You Christians believe that, that God has come in human flesh. It's the most incredible thing I've ever heard. If only it were true. It is true. Cheryl was right. On Christmas Day, God descended the stairways of heaven with a baby on His arms. And at a point of time, God became a tiny bit of flesh. The Word made flesh. That's the incarnation. And because of that, the way is made plain. That is salvation. God was in Christ for this reason, reconciling the world unto Himself. Now the night that Jesus was born was not a silent night. Few considered it a holy night. All was not calm and all was not bright. It was a noisy night. It was an unholy night because it was, there was a world full of people lost and, and confused and searching. And the night that Jesus was born, men were doing what men had always done and have always done. Men were hating men, men were killing men, men were cheating men, men were ignoring the needs of men, men were ignoring God, men were dying in their sin. And when God arrived on the scene incognito as it were, he did so because he determined that he was going to make a way for man to recover his lost humanity. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. The word means to receive into favor. And it speaks of all that Jesus did to make man reconcile to God. Now notice that it is God reconciling the world to Himself. You'll never find in the New Testament where... God needs to be reconciled to man. Never will you see that. It's always man being reconciled to God. It's not a question of of pacifying an angry God. For the whole process of salvation had its beginning in him. For it was because God so loved the world that he gave. It wasn't that God was estranged from man, but man estranged from God. It wasn't that God had built up barriers, but man had built up barriers. And God's Word, the Word that comes from this Scripture is that God sends an invitation to estranged and wandering children, the invitation of a loving Father, come home because there's love waiting for you here. And somebody has put it so beautifully. when he said that Jesus left the bosom of the Heavenly Father and came to the bosom of an earthly mother. And he partook of human nature in order that we might partake of divine nature. He became son of man in order that we might become sons of God. He was born in a stable, raised in obscurity, lived in poverty. He, neither had, he had neither education or training and yet his birth sends angels singing and wise men worshiping and shepherds wandering. And even the stars sent a diamond-shaped representative to point over his strange cradle. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he confounded the learned. In manhood, he ruled even the forces of nature. He taught with an originality, an authority, with a simplicity and profundity that was unmatched by any others. His character was so sinless that his foes and his friends alike. And yet he is the theme of more songs than all the rest put together. He never founded a college, and yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many learners as he. He never practiced medicine, and yet he's healed more broken lives than any other person who has ever lived. He never marshaled an army, and yet no one can boast of as many people who are willing to lay down their lives for him. Great men have come and gone, and he lives on. In infancy, Herod could not kill him. In manhood, Satan could not seduce him. And though he laid down his life voluntarily, death could not destroy him. And the grave could not contain him. And history and time cannot confine him. He lives on in the present, the contemporary of every generation. He is the risen, ruling, returning Lord. His first coming as Savior will be crowned in His second coming as Sovereign. He is the everlasting, ever-loving, ever-living Savior who saves to the uttermost those who come to God by Him. And that's why they called Him Jesus. Because He came to take away, to to save us from our sins. I could hear the the angels announce it. I can hear the shepherds discuss it. I can hear Mary whisper it. Jesus, sweet little Jesus, boy. You're Jesus. Say the name Judas, and you think of infamy and betrayal. Say the name Napoleon, and you think of war and bloodshed. Say the name Lincoln, and you think of slavery and its emancipation. Say the name Landry, and you think of football. Say the name Napoleon, Say the name Rockefeller, and you think of money. Say the name Salk, and you think of medicine. Say the name Jesus. Say the name with me. Say the name Jesus. And you think of a boy born in a manger and a, a diamond-shaped star pointing down to his strange cradle. Say the name Jesus. And you think of a young lad standing in the temple, confounding the mighty. Say the name. Jesus. And you think of a man standing out in the wilderness, 40 days without food, in the struggle of life and death with Satan. Say the name. Jesus. And you think of a man walking on water, standing on the bow of a boat with his arms outstretched, and all of nature bows in his presence. Say the name. Jesus, and you think of demons who fled before His power and yielded to His authority. Say the name Jesus, and you see a man sitting out on a hillside preaching a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the likes of which has never been preached. Say the name, and you see a man standing before Pilate. Say the name Jesus, and you see one whose face is covered with blood in Gethsemane. Say the name. Jesus and you see him trudging up a hill with a cross on his back say the name Jesus and you see one hanging on that tree for our sin yours and mine say the name Jesus and you see him in his resurrected glory say the name Jesus and you see him ascending into heaven say the name Jesus and you see him at the right hand of the Father interceding, able to save to the uttermost them that come to God through him for this is why he came. God invaded history. And when He came, He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. The way made plain, the only way, Jesus. And that leads us to the last point. The world must know that's participation. And so He said, we have been committed. It has been committed unto us, the ministry of reconciliation. And in verse 20 he said, "Now then we are ambassadors for Christ." What a choice word Paul uses to describe this participation, this activity into which you and I, in which you and I are to be involved. We are ambassadors. When an ambassador sent from the United States, he represents us in another country. And so When that country sees Him or hears Him, it says, that's the United States. He represents the United States. We're God's children. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're Christians. When the world sees us, hears us, they say, He's a Christian. And not only that, but the ambassador has the honor of his country in his hands. So that his words are listened to and his actions are watched. And the rest of the world says, that's what the United States says. And that's how the United States acts. What a terrifying responsibility. It's the Christian's proud privilege. It's his terrifying responsibility. He has the honor of the king in his hands. And the terrifying, awesome thought is this. And when the world looks at your life, they will be more, they will be influenced more or less toward the church that you serve and the master to whom you're committed. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation, not to tear down, but to build up. Not Not to destroy, but to create. Not to blast, but to bless the ministry of reconciliation. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. Jesus Christ was born. On January the 20th, a man came home from work, sat down in his easy boy, leaned back with his paper, and uh, started to read. While he was reading his newspaper, he heard the strange sound. Some kid was outside singing, Hark the herald angels, that's about the way he sang. And he thought, what in the world is that? And he listened a little bit more, and, and his little kid was singing, Hark the herald angels sing. And so he went to the door. He said, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, I'm singing Christmas carols. I'm going caroling. He said, well, you're just about a month late with your caroling. He said, I know it. He said, I had the measles at Christmas, and I didn't get to go caroling. And he said, I'm just out caroling. Any time a good time to sing it, isn't it? Any time's a good time to tell it, isn't it? Any time's a good time to declare it. I'm telling you, I proclaim to you, the world must know. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank you that at a point in time, at a moment in history, when everything was just right, you came. Not only did you come, but you came to be our Savior, take away our sins. And we thank you, dear Lord, that you have taken away our sins. As far as the east from the west, you've buried it into the depths of the sea, covered it, cleansed it in the blood of your Son, a lamb that was without spot or blemish. And Father, I come to this moment today as we've come many, many times at Christmas time to reflect on what is for us. Aware, Father, that there is a world that is desperate and needy and lost. God, I pray you'll send us into that world to sing the carol, to, to tell the word, to preach, to proclaim the message that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Thank you, dear Lord, for that great thing. Now for those of us this morning who have decisions to make pub in a public way, I pray that you'll grant us the courage to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.